Welcome to Mapping Global Transformations. In this episode, we look at blockchain with Will Nottenbelt, Professor of Applied Quantitative Analysis in the Department of Computing at Imperial College London and Director of the Imperial College Centre of Cryptocurrency Research and Engineering, and Cathy Mulligan, Research Fellow at Imperial College and Co-Director of the Cryptocurrency Centre. If I can just have a go at explaining what, what is a blockchain or a distributed ledger, it's essentially a kind of distributed database which uh, allows a bunch of parties with common interests to agree on an immutable and transparent record of the exchange and processing of a particular kind of asset, whether that be a cryptocurrency uh, like Bitcoin or whether it actually, for example, might represent the movement of goods through a uh, supply chain. This is all possible to represent with blockchain technology. So I often said that if the internet was all about duplicating and disseminating information, then blockchain is all about protocols which let us exchange value. So, you know, copy protection has been a huge problem in the computing industry for so long. And actually here for the first time is a technology which solves this problem. And it doesn't just enable, for example, digital money in the way that you would expect. It also, for example, lets us do software licensing and so on in a very natural way. And even something like as simple as a, a shopping voucher now becomes the token of value, which can be exchanged amongst people in, in a kind of a blockchain market. I think uh, there are a number of blockchain-related developments uh, worth keeping an eye on. Uh, so, for example, uh, Bitcoin at the moment is going through a bit of a crisis of scalability and governance. And I think everyone is uh, keen to see how that will play out. So basically, the problem is that typically at any one moment these days, there are tens of thousands of unconfirmed Bitcoin transactions outstanding. And these transactions are really having difficulty making their way onto the blockchain simply because the blocks are limited in size. In fact, they're completely full. Now, there are various proposals to deal with this, but the irony is that actually the deployment and realization of any solution actually requires a consensus of developers and miners. And it seems that getting consensus on the best way forward is a bit elusive, actually, in the Bitcoin community. And arguably, this is kind of driving um, potential users into the arms of alternative blockchains, which are maybe perceived to have better governance uh, arrangements and clearer development roadmaps, for example, Ethereum and Litecoin. Second thing we're seeing is the tension between companies and organizations who want to develop or build on closed private and permission distributed ledgers essentially to leverage efficiency gains. And rather unsurprising, this is mostly the established uh, incumbents. And those who are looking to build on these open public and permissionless blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and mostly that is uh, nimble upstarts who are looking to disrupt the business models of the established incumbents. Uh, thirdly, myself particularly find it interesting to see how blockchain is starting to impact on traditional methods of capital raising. So in particular, there's this phenomenon of the initial coin offering or ICO, which is starting to gain serious traction. So in 2016, uh, ICOs actually raised around 240 million US dollars, which is almost half of the amount that's been raised through traditional venture capital and angel investment channels. And we're also starting to see the rise of a new breed of application 
oriented blockchains being funded by ICOs. For example, there's one called First Blood, which is a blockchain for esports. And that raised five and a half million dollars worth of Ether in almost all of it in just actually a few minutes. Also, what I think is exciting is that we're starting to see lawmakers and regulators taking notice of this technology and starting to get to grips with it. In Arizona, I think they've just signed a blockchain records bill into law, which recognizes a blockchain signature as an electronic signature, uh, a blockchain data as an electronic record, and a smart contract as a legal contract. And in Japan, lawmakers have just recognized Bitcoin as a legal method of payment. One final development I think is uh, worth taking note of is the way central banks around the world, uh, from UK to China, are trying to see how blockchain might be applied to digital currencies issued by a nation state. At the moment, I think everyone is very much in an exploratory phase, sort of mapping out the landscape of possibilities. But I think it's only a matter of time before some major central bank declares that it's going to take the plunge and move beyond the proof of concept phase and into production. And what's particularly interesting to see as well is that companies are not waiting for the central banks. They are actually starting to issue digital tokens of their own, which correspond to essentially units of, of national currency. A couple of things uh, that might be interesting to add are also, obviously, there is a very large scale uptake of blockchain outside of uh, financial services and also outside even in the, the ICOs. Um, so we're seeing, you know, massive uptake in, for example, uh, supply chains. So there's a couple of announcements that have come out from SAP. Um, they're embedding blockchain now into their technology. The Commonwealth Bank of Australia, for example, also registered, I think, the first bill of lading, wasn't it, onto the blockchain. So I think there is a, an absolutely fantastic opportunity that we're seeing in this space and a complete explosion, at least of projects. So there are more trials at the moment, but I think that um, we were seeing quite a, a large um, uptake. I think the other areas that are going to be extremely interesting is um, using blockchain in sort of unique ways to prove integrity of data and to, you know, further develop trust in what is you know known as the data economy that we have today and there's a quite a few companies uh, active in that space already but also i think there's a, an overlooked opportunity to help cities and local authorities dramatically reduce the cost of operations through the use of blockchain and this is really quite an exciting area i think because uh, a lot of cities around the world are you know under in incredible financial pressure to do a lot more, to service a lot more citizens with a lot less financial sort of support from central governments and those kind of things. And I think there's a very exciting uh, initiative actually that was, I think it was announced last week or the week before by the Dubai government, which is actually looking at blockchain for, for smart cities. So quite a lot of activity and I think we'll see, you know, an increasing role potentially for blockchain in forms of citizen engagement. So, you know, transparent citizen engagement. So, I mean, and, you know, the, the whole issue of local governments needing to get to grips with this technology is a very good one because the, the pressures on the budgets of local government councils, certainly in the UK, is absolutely extreme right now. And, you know, a lot of the uh, open data movements and all of these kind of, you know, IoT solutions rely extensively on the, you know, reliability and security of the data. So blockchain can help track and trace data transactions as well as uh, any other financial transaction.
so I think we're actually in a very, very exciting period of time. It's probably, uh, you know, one of the most exciting periods of time to be an engineer, um, at least in the technology industry. What we're actually seeing is a wave of digital disruption. So we've seen the Internet of Things, which has given us, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, where we're seeing IoT being deeply embedded into manufacturing, into everyday activities like your wearables, your Fitbits, um, your mobile phone acts as a, as a sensor, basically. So blockchain for me is the final drop in this wave of digital disruption, which is why it's such an exciting technology. It allows us to remove intermediaries that we've had in society actually for hundreds of years and in some cases, um, you know, nearly thousands of years. And I think that it throws down some really fascinating and interesting challenges for the everyday citizen, for governments, but also for companies as well. So for the everyday citizen, I think understanding what blockchain is and what it means and how it actually functions is going to be an increasingly, well, not increasingly, but it's going to be an important part of day-to-day -day life because it will change the way that you potentially interact with transactions. It's going to change the way that you manage and operate access to assets, for example. Um, you could think about somebody who buys a car, for example. Potentially, they could put that car through using a, a blockchain or distributed ledger of some kind. They could put that autonomous vehicle to work for them, effectively as a taxi. So they could have a distributed, you could have a distributed version of Uber with no need for the centralized platform and no need for the company making a lot of money off basically other people's assets. So that's, you know, some really exciting ways to think about human beings interacting with the things around them, putting things to work for you. Uh, so potentially you can live this... Um, long-promised life of leisure that technology is supposed to give us. I think that some of the key challenges, however, are, you know, what is theft? So Will brought up previously um, the DAO hack, which, you know, when that occurred, effectively the re first initial response of the DAO operators was to say, well, that's the way the code was written, and so therefore this isn't actually theft, this is the way the code is supposed to work. But in the real world, if I had taken $150 million out of your bank account, then I would have been arrested and put in jail. So what is theft? Do we think that code is law? Is it? I mean, I don't have the answer to that. It's a discussion that society needs to take. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I agree with that. Clearly, the re regulation in this space has, has got a long way to catch up with the uh, uh, technology. And I think another big challenge that we, we have right now is making blockchain technology accessible to ordinary people and, and, and consumers. And I actually think the, the most successful services in this space are going to be the ones, I think, where people don't realize that they are actually using blockchain technology as the underlying enabler. In the same way as when you search for something on the on the internet, you don't need to understand anything about hypertext uh, protocol or, or be able to code in HTML. So when it comes to the effective use of blockchain technology, you shouldn't actually have to know about all of the underlying mechanisms like proof of work and, and, and the operation of, of, of blockchains. But what you do need to know, actually, is that that network has not been compromised. So I think we need to develop effective means to communicate with end users that, yes, this, you know, the network is running as it should and you can, you know, um, trust this to make, it, make financial transactions for you. Yes, I think that's important that people have simple means to assess or be able to trust the integrity of the underlying networks that they are mm. using for sure. 
I mean, final point on the industrial sort of revolution perspective. I, I really do think that what we're seeing it here is a shift to a new form of economic structure. I think we are seeing something that is unique. Um, it's very exciting to be a researcher in this space because we're actually watching something extremely unique that most people don't actually get to see. It's, we're moving to a new form of economic structure whereby if you think about the way intermediaries have been created previously, how we've created trust, we've had banks, we've had lawyers, we've had real estate agents, and in essence we've also had the firm. The firm acts as an intermediary. It aggregates labour, it aggregates capital, and it puts those that to work within society. Blockchain challenges all of those intermediaries, actually. So, as Will mentioned, uh, you know, it, it challenges the way that a smart contract could be used to replace certain parts of law or we obviously we've seen bitcoin replacing banks but the idea of decentralizing the individual as well to remove the boundary of the firm and to actually break down the boundary of the firm means we're shifting to a new form of economic structure that is really very very exciting and it's almost like we're going back to before we had massive economies of scale before we had, you know, the second uh, wave of the electricity in the Industrial Revolution. That's when we started to see that. And we're now seeing the disintermediation of something that happened 150, 200 years ago. Sorry, I get very excited. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I think there are a number of challenges facing um, blockchain as a technology at the moment. And sometimes it's a little bit easy to get carried away by all the hype and expectations. But I think what we need to remember is that actually this is a technology that is really in the nascent phase. It's less than 10 years old. And, and, and really the space is just looks like a rather chaotic wild west at the moment. You know, there, there are dozens of competing technologies out there in both the enterprise and the public blockchain space. There's multiple industry consortia all jockeying for position. Really nothing has settled. And I, I think for organizations who are looking to adopt blockchain um, technology at the moment, they may be feeling a bit lost in almost like a sea of primordial soup. You know, people are just beginning to talk about standards, but, you know, and even then there's some people saying that maybe it's a bit too premature to even be thinking about that. Another big challenge, I think, is that really to make effective progress in this area, you need to bring together a combination of a large number of interdisciplinary skills and, and, and perspectives. And this is certainly something that we've been trying to do at Imperial in the Cryptocurrency Center. You don't just need excellent technical people. And I mean, excellent technical people are important, but you can't also forget about, for example, your experts in business processes, economics, security and privacy and the law. You know? and, and there are a large number of other fundamental challenges outstanding. For example, you know, the Dow scandal raises the whole issue of how do we ensure that smart contracts are really coded in a way that corresponds to the intended operation? How can ordinary people have faith that the contracts they're signing up to are, are, are what they really think they're signing up to uh, without becoming experts in, in reading um, smart contract code? Other other things are, for example, in, in supply chains and, and um, uh, provenance blockchains. Uh, we need mechanisms to link physical objects and identities in the real world to the virtual objects on the blockchain. That's absolutely not a simple problem, but it's a key step in, in reinforcing the, the trust that we have in, in, in such blockchains. 
Another issue that crops up is, for example, the contagion of risk. If we suddenly move to a financial system where settlement is almost instant and enabled by blockchains and distributed ledgers, what does that mean for the way risk breaks when something goes wrong and how we can, how can we manage that? So, I mean, these are just some of the research issues that we're looking to, into at the center here at Imperial. And I think we reckon these are going to keep us busy for quite some time. I think a key challenge as well, on a, from a more broad perspective, if you will, is how we ensure that this isn't, doesn't exclude people. For example, you know, right now, Bitcoin, if I'm completely honest, every time I meet people in Bitcoin, they're young white men probably make myself unpopular by saying that that's genuinely not representative of the entire world it's actually not representative of uh, the entire uk economy and you know if we are moving to blockchain technologies as a fundamental part of the economy and the, the social system how do we ensure that people are not excluded i think that's an important question yeah, and I think that's well. It's also important to when you're bringing in your experts from all, all all different walks of life. It's important to have a diversity there, also in terms of mindset, right, and and experience. You need domain experts, you need the technology experts, and you want as, as diverse a, a set of inputs on 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 the processes as as possible. Yeah, I think one of the things I've sort of felt over the last couple of years being engaged in sort of blockchain and Bitcoin and is more than any other technology previously, this actually requires us to think really deeply about the impact of the technology. It has sort of flow-on effects that, for example, the Internet of Things didn't really have or cloud computing didn't really have. I think that is why it's so, you know, desperately needed to have interdisciplinary research and activity. And actually not just interdisciplinary in terms of academia either, but also, you know, engagement with policymakers. So we often engage with policymakers in order to actually get a real understanding of the real issues that they're grappling with on a day-to-day -day basis around this space. And to go out and engage with end-user communities you know, and and companies and startups. It's really important to have the cross-pollination. But I think it's also important for policymakers not to be tempted to maybe rush to over-regulate the space and maybe stifle uh, the potential for innovation. I think, you know, initiatives which give the people these safe spaces in which to try out new concepts and, 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 and to align technology uh, with uh, regulation, you know, like the um, UK's Financial Conduct Authority's uh, sandbox. I think those are really great and we need more of that sort of um, uh, thing. I think for me the policy implications of this technology are really much more significant and much more broad than previous generations of technology. You know, effectively, uh, lots of people have so far, they've been discussing really, you know, in-depth Bitcoin regulation, what does it mean, and the tax problems and the tax regulation and all of those kind of issues. But, you know, as, as we, we mentioned, uh, the standardization activities have started in ISO, and that gives rise to certain questions about policy implications. So how do you regulate blockchain? You know, blockchain, actually, if you think about it, is a lot like the internet. It's a general technology product, which means that actually every industry 
is going to have a different reaction to it. So, for example, if we go back to banking and, and the idea of a fiat-backed um, cryptocurrency, so a, you know, a national currency put on a cryptocurrency basis or underlying technical infrastructure, you know, it gives us some really interesting challenges. But how do we ensure that a blockchain is FIPS compliant? So FIPS compliance is you know, required for banking systems, basically, certain types of banking system. You know, it, it's every industry is going to have its own regulation and you will have to have a different policy angle for each of those industries with regards to blockchain. And likewise, I think the regulation is going to have to mutually adapt to the technology, right? Yeah, to a certain extent, I think. But each industry or each regulatory authority is going to have to take its own stance towards blockchain rather than having a blockchain regulation. So that's why, you know, to be honest, I think it's a little bit early for the ISO standards because we, we don't know really what you're actually standardising yet. It's quite quite difficult. But um, I think blockchain can also help with existing regulation. I think um, that touches a little bit on your point as well. So, for example, the data privacy regulations that are coming in in the EU, you know, blockchain could be very useful there to guard against the concentrations of power or the data monopolies that we can see emerging in the world. So blockchain, you know, really from a policy perspective, gives us all the usual public good problems. It's a, you know, a shared infrastructure, effectively, which means you, you've got all of the usual issues around... Uh, you know, it's, it's very similar to the telecommunications industry where people are sharing spectrum. Effectively, you're actually sharing, um, you're sharing an infrastructure together. So, you know, from a, a key question for regulators or policymakers, I think, will be, you know, where do you impose constraints on this technology? So it's infeasible, really, to regulate all the peers in, an, in a blockchain network due to the quantity, the geographic distribution, and all of those kind of inter, you know, cross-boundary, cross-border problems. So often the nodes in a network are, are being stored in different countries. You know, and traditionally a regulator would go with an intermediary. They would use an intermediary to regulate, but that actually goes against the entire ethos of, the, of blockchain. So I think there are some really fascinating questions there for regulators. But I think the main takeaways for policymakers is what? Well, 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 I, think the point you, I think the point you raise about, you know, what is there actually for policymakers to regulate is an important one. I mean, a decentralized blockchain is a very, it has no points of target to, mm. to um, re regulate. And I think regulators have done the sensible thing so far, which is to look at, the interfaces of where the technology interfaces with the real world, for example, through mm. exchanges and so on, and chosen to apply uh, what regulation there is there. And I, I mean, I think that's a, a, a sensible approach given the, the characteristics of the technology. So that works for, you know, Bitcoin and things like that, mm. but it doesn't necessarily work for supply chain. So I think there could be some interesting pieces of work there that, that a regulator needs to address and understand, which is about... How do you, for example, in a city space or in a supply chain, ensure that people are sharing data with one another? So in a supply chain, for example, you generally don't want um, to share too much up and down, upstream and downstream because you don't want to know people to know the true price of a good. And if you're using blockchain to manage transactions on a blockchain, uh, sorry, to manage supply chain transactions, it becomes completely transparent, right? So actually you can collapse certain parts of very lucrative uh, supply chains if you do it like that. So I think understanding when and where uh, this type of sharing of information is required is something that the, the regulators would need to address. 
So in what industries should you force people to share data more effectively? Yeah, and I think the important thing, as I said before, is just not to over-regulate and, and to provide a, a, an environment that actually encourages innovation and experimentation in the space, really. Thank you for listening. Join us next time to explore more global transformations.